Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Growing older isn't fun. When you're a child, you wish you were older. You crave your independence and freedom. There is a want. A strong desire to drive, drive away from your parents and their oversight. Every step of the way, we are enticed to keep on going. To keep on moving with time, with age. But the thing with age and time is that you can't stop it. It is a locomotive that is hurtling down the tracks, and no physical barrier can stop its impending crash at the end of the ride. But that's life. That's what getting older means, and to accept that is only one of the many compromises you need to make with life and with living. That one day, an unknown day, it will all end. As we move towards the end of our lives, our faculties begin to fail us, the mechanisms in the human body begin to break down, and we slowly become less and less effective members of society. When that happens, and when the burden is too great for a family, there is always long-term elderly care, which is too often used as a parking lot for the elderly. There is a never-ending list of atrocities and inhumane acts that have occurred in these homes, but it seems to be a necessary evil, as many people cannot dedicate the time or resources to caring for the elderly. I personally have extremely negative experiences with these homes. I've seen firsthand what they look like and how they operate on a long-term basis, and I know exactly where the failings can occur. And in many instances, and many places, those failings occur, it's with the staff. The staff who hold all the authority, all of the trust, and all of the keys. Today we will be talking about Elizabeth Wetlawfer, just one of many nurses who took their charge of the vulnerable and twisted it to their own satisfaction. It was the summer of 2007. The mosquitoes were out, the sun was hot, and James Silcox was growing older with each passing day. James Silcox was a World War II veteran, He was a straightforward, tough, no-nonsense individual, and stubborn, so endearingly stubborn. Andrea, James Silcox's daughter, had purchased him and his wife matching walkers, which she had deemed cute, and thought her parents would enjoy this gift. Andrea's mother, and James Silcox's wife, was more than happy to receive the gift, but 84-year-old James was having none of it. He wanted nothing to do with the walker. To use the walker his daughter had given him and to accept that gift would have been an admission of his age and his infirmity. And James wanted nothing to do with that. But like many other elderly individuals, James, who didn't want to get older and fought it every day and every step of the way, 
while James was losing a battle with an unseen enemy. At the age of 84 years old, James Silcox suffered a devastating and debilitating stroke, which robbed him of any remaining physical independence and mobility. And alongside his stroke, dementia aided his mind day by day. The decision was difficult but practical. James Silcox's wife was unable to care for him any longer. She was getting on in age herself, and through caring for James, she began to take less care of herself, as his needs took up more and more of each day. So Andrea, alongside her mother and James, made a hard decision to put him in long-term care. In Woodstock, Ontario, one of the best-known long-term care facilities for the elderly was in the center of Woodstock, called Caressant Care. It was the biggest long-term care home in the area and had garnered a mostly positive reputation over a period of 32 years. Their extensive promotional material described the home as a family setting, caring, secure, and able to house 160 elderly individuals at any given time. But unknown to Caressant Care, as well as the Silcox family, not only would James Silcox be inhabiting the long-term care home in the summer of 2007, but so would a sadistic serial killer. Born Elizabeth, or Beth Parker, in 1967, Woodstock, Ontario, Elizabeth Wetlawfer, as she was known in 2007, grew up in a leave-it-to-beaver, all-American 1950s-style household. She grew up with strict and overbearing Baptist parents, played trombone in the high school band, and was the goalie for the field hockey team in high school. High school wasn't easy for Elizabeth, though. She was bullied. And as she grew, while the rest of us fairly normal creeps learned to cope in healthy ways, she became duplicitous, cunning and cruel, and all the while hiding those negative attributes to her personality behind a thin smile. During Elizabeth Wetlawfer's teenage years, she became aware of her budding bisexuality, finding both men and women attractive. But there was a dilemma in this, as no one, male or female, was interested in her the same way. As high school came to an end and the prospect of college leered at her from just around the corner, she explored her options and felt her interest lay in journalism but soon found she had a fascination with medication and care, and that meant an interest in nursing. Elizabeth Wetlawfer both attended and graduated from the London Baptist Bible College with a bachelor degree in religious counseling. But while college can be an escape from those parts of high school which are most unpleasant, things weren't any easier for Elizabeth at college. In fact, life seemed to compound and become more difficult for Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who identified as bisexual, attended a gay-friendly church with a girlfriend. But sadly, her father found out. Her father, who was not gay-friendly, drove to the church and literally dragged her home, and away from what he deemed to be blasphemous. It was shortly after this event that Elizabeth Wetlawfer was sent to, and for lack of better words, a pray-the-gay-away conversion camp, which, thankfully, at the beginning of this month, October 2020, the Canadian government reintroduced a bill banning LGBTQ plus two conversion therapy. 
Unsurprisingly, the lack of family support and acceptance, the trauma of conversion therapy, and constant reminders that what Elizabeth was and how she was feeling was unnatural and or somehow wrong and evil left her with more than a few mental scars, including strong feelings of self-hatred and doubt. But life continues, mental scars or not. Elizabeth attended Conestoga College, studying and graduating with a nursing degree. Elizabeth then began bouncing from job to job, as many do for a time, trying to find their place. But in 1997, Elizabeth married someone, someone she saw herself spending the rest of her life with. In 1997, Elizabeth Parker married Donnie Wetlofer and took his last name. But shortly after began developing more problems with her mental health, including bipolar disorder. Elizabeth struggled to manage this diagnosis and soon had her nursing license restricted after she was caught red-handed stealing anti-anxiety medication called Ativan from her work and having a nearly fatal overdose on the medication. She had never truly found a support system. Elizabeth's sexuality had been rejected by her family her husband wasn't fully able to understand her bipolar disorder diagnosis, and she'd never truly belonged to any group. And in saying all of this, let me make it absolutely clear. Elizabeth Wetlofer is not deserving of any sympathy. It's just the facts of the case. Without a clear support system present in her day-to-day -day life, Elizabeth began seeking help from other struggling women online, and eventually started developing a bit of a relationship with one of them. Donnie Wetlofer, her husband, called what she was doing sick. I suppose he too held a small-town mentality around bisexuality, and we can assume he also felt ultimately betrayed. And this betrayal led to their divorce after her online relationship became known to him. Post-divorce, though, Elizabeth kept the same last name, Wetlofer and soon met another woman, Sheila Andrews, whom she found a mutual attraction with and they began a relationship with one another shortly before moving in together. It was around this same time that Elizabeth Wetlofer began working at the Crescent Care Long-Term Care Home, and her murder spree would begin in 2007, the same year that James Silcox moved into the care facility. Elizabeth's first two murder attempts were ultimately failures, she had tried to overdose two elderly women who lived in the home with insulin, but they had survived, although later dying in part to the systemic shock of an insulin overdose. Elizabeth Wetlofer's first true victim was James Silcox, the 84-year-old World War II veteran who had moved into the Crescent Care that same summer. He tragically wouldn't live to see the leaves fall in September. The veteran and father of six children died on August 11th, 2007. This crime, this murder, wasn't the best kept secret. In theory, the crime, the case, the story should end in a confession. But today's story, something else happened. Elizabeth told Sheila that what had happened at the care facility perhaps wasn't an accident after all, or due to old age that in fact she had injected James Silcox with the insulin to which Sheila replied something along the lines of, well, stop doing that or you'll get caught. 
Eventually, but not due to her confession, Sheila left Elizabeth, which one can assume, given the myriad of problems, mental and otherwise, that sat on Elizabeth's shoulders, that this rejection didn't do much in the way of preventing Elizabeth from continuing to explore her murderous intentions. In fact, it probably left her bitter and driven to take out her rage and rejection on others. From what we know, Creep, between 2007 and 2014, Elizabeth killed six more elderly patients, all by injecting insulin, and failed to murder at least another two. See, insulin was easy to acquire, and wasn't monitored the way other drugs at the facility were, and wasn't included in any talk screens if there were suspicions. Basically, there was no monitoring on the insulin at all. Elizabeth Wetlawfer could acquire as much as she wanted and use that abundant amount without ever having someone notice a difference in stock day to day. And given that she was the only night staff nurse on duty, it was as easy as a serial killer could hope for. In the middle of the night, without any other medical staff on duty, Elizabeth Wetlawfer would stalk into the room of her patients and she would look them in the eye and tell them the injection they were receiving were vitamins. Those patients trusted her. Those parents and grandparents who cared for others their entire lives now resigned into the care of nurses and help staff who relied on Elizabeth Wetlawfer for their health, among other things, trusted her. And insulin isn't a nice way to go into that forever sleep either. If you've listened to previous episodes, we've gone over other twisted nurses who betray that trust. And if you haven't, to save those who don't want to hear the play-by-play, -play, you should Google it if you are curious. If you assume Sheila was the only person she confessed to, because surely only one person out of a thousand would disregard a seemingly serious and sincere confession, well, you'd be wrong because Elizabeth confessed again in 2011 to a teenager working at the Caressant Care Home. And then again, in 2014, Elizabeth confessed to her pastor and his wife, and then to a boyfriend, and then again to a lawyer, who, well, you guessed it like the others, did nothing. Like Sheila, and to take it one step further, the lawyer advised Elizabeth to not say what had happened and to keep quiet and also neglected to contact police. Every single one of those people, by proxy of Elizabeth, contributed to the continuing of the murder spree through their apathy. They don't just get to wash their hands and say, Elizabeth did it, it wasn't me. There's a social contract that they completely disregarded. And while they weren't the ones murdering elderly patients at Caressant Care, are responsible as well. In 2014, and not due to one of these many confessions, Seven years after her first victim, James Silcox, Elizabeth Wetlawfer was fired from Caressant Care. But why was Elizabeth, the ever-amazing employee of the month, fired? Caressant Care actually took the time to file a termination report with Ontario's nursing union that was so long that they couldn't fit the bulk of her infractions on the form. Elizabeth was known to be crass, rude, inappropriate, and made sexual advances at student nurses. And then, of course, there was also the fact that she was a murderer, but they didn't know that at the time. 
After the Ontario Nurses Association intervened in her termination, Elizabeth received $2,000 as her termination settlement and got a letter of recommendation. One can only assume that perhaps that was a battle they wish they hadn't have fought, especially considering her long track record of problematic behavior. After her termination, though, Elizabeth didn't stop her nursing work. She began working at other facilities part-time and at patients' homes where she took house calls, and also where Elizabeth injected another three patients with insulin and managing to kill one. Perhaps the most terrifying part of this case is that had Elizabeth Wetlawfer never confessed, one of Canada's most prolific and terrifying serial killers never would have come to light. Kind of okay, you're next one to go again. There was always that red surging that I identified as God telling me this is what, yeah, this is how you work for me. Did you ever try and fight that feeling later on? As you'll see, but when you got that feeling in your chest and stomach, would you, would you directly go to get the influence? Um, pretty much, as soon as I had time with the rest of my job. How many patients would you be caring for during, on one shift? 32. You'd be responsible for all 32? Yeah, 32. So each nurse would have 32? Yeah. Nurse, uh, our registered practical nurse, registered practical nurse. Okay. So that's a busy day. Mm-hmm. And I know we talked about it earlier, but... Again, just to revisit that, do you think that's something that played into this? I think the so. The stresses of the job. I, oh, yeah, I definitely think Because you have a lot going on in your life. Yeah, I definitely think the stress played into it. Maybe it made, me, made my mind more susceptible to stuff. Well, there were other people that didn't who didn't die. Prior to James? Prior to James. Okay, and are they documented on here? He's the first one who died. Right. Back here? But there's some other... People who didn't die. I honestly felt like God wanted to use me. In your mind, in your stomach, where was that feeling? In my chest area. After I did it, I got that laughter. When would you feel that laughter? Would you feel it right after you injected it or once the person passed away? Um, both. Yeah. Both. It was like a cackling from the pit of hell, if that makes sense. Did the cackling continue? When you met the young, was injected with insulin? Um, after that two year break? Yes. Yeah, yes, it did. It's the same cackle. Same feeling, same cackle. In 2017, Elizabeth checked herself into rehab. And while in rehab, perhaps Elizabeth had a come to Jesus moment. Or perhaps she finally had someone listening to her. Perhaps she finally got the attention she wanted and thought she deserved. Whatever it was, Elizabeth confessed to the staff about her many crimes. The rehab staff in turn informed the College of Nurses of Ontario, who in turn finally told the police. Elizabeth also personally called an investigator from the college and had the Center for Addiction and Mental Health staff fax a four-page confession. In October of that year, Elizabeth was charged with eight counts of murder, and in January 2017, was charged with an additional six crimes, including four counts of attempted murder and two counts of aggravated assault. Elizabeth claimed 
that she had been directed and terrorized by a voice in her head. But that fact aside, Elizabeth, like I said before, is not someone to sympathize with. She at no point in her murder spree lost the ability to tell right from wrong, and was completely aware of her actions the entire time. Through rigorous personality testing, it was determined that Elizabeth showed significant borderline personality disorders. Her symptoms were unstable moods, impulsiveness, a fear of abandonment, and anger problems. And Elizabeth was also diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder as well. Elizabeth Wetlofer was sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences, with no possibility of parole for 25 years. To end this episode, I'd like to say a couple things. Although she was only convicted of eight counts of murder, considering the lack of oversight on insulin, it is thought that Elizabeth killed many, many more, but unfortunately, we may never know. I'd also like to say that those with mental illnesses are not all killers. They aren't to be feared. While it is true that a lot of serial killers or murderers in fact have mental illnesses, not all those with mental illnesses are killers. In fact, nearly one in five adults in the U.S. live with a mental illness. Let that sink in next time you listen to an episode. Let it resonate. One in five. Those with mental illness and those without should be treated with the same level of caution because you can never truly trust anyone. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. <laughs>